Between the Covers is brought to you in part through the support of Propeller, a magazine of books, music, art, film, and life, and its publishing imprint, Propeller Books. Visit them on the web at propellermag.com and propellerbooks.com or on Twitter at PropellerMag. Coming up next is the 105th episode of Between the Covers, the fifth of the new year, an interview with Micheline Aharonian Markham. But before we begin, I want to alert you to some new things about the show since the beginning of 2018. The show is still a listener-supported labor of love. You can still go to patreon.com slash between the covers and support the show. You will notice there that you can still get the fantastic co-written and out-of-print book, Vera and Linus by Jesse Ball. And as of the beginning of 2018, you will notice a growing archive of bonus material on the Patreon site. Joining readings by Lainey Zumas, Yunsung Kim, Carmen Maria Machado, and Therese Marie Myatt will be two readings by Micheline Aroni and Markham from her forthcoming books, The New American and Small Pieces. Again, you can check this all out at patreon.com slash between the covers. Enjoy today's program. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is the Saudi Arabian-born, Los Angeles-raised writer Micheline Aharonian Markham. Markham is the author of six novels. Her first three, Three Apples Fell from Heaven, The Daydreaming Boy, and Draining the Sea form a trilogy that examines the Armenian genocide and its aftermath in the 20th century. The Daydreaming Boy was the winner of the Penn USA Award in Fiction, and her debut, Three Apples Fell from Heaven, was a New York Times notable book, a finalist for the Penn Hemingway Award for First Fiction, and is currently being adapted to the screen with its opening night scheduled at Cannes as part of their Refugee Voices in Film series. Markham's following two books, Mirror in the Well and A Brief History of Yes, both out from the Dalkey Archive Press, are the first two installments of Markham's domestic trilogy, along with the still-to-be-published the nothing on which the fire depends. Micheline Aharoni and Markham is a Whiting Award winner, a Lannan Foundation Fellow, and a Fulbright Scholar, the latter leading her to teach in Beirut, Lebanon in 2008. She's also the founder and creative director of the New American Story Project, whose mission is to foster humane, substantive dialogue around the complexities of migration, 
U.S. immigration, asylum laws, and the human rights concerns of new immigrants, and which is currently documenting the stories of unaccompanied Central American minors fleeing violence in Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador, allowing them to tell their stories in their own words. Markham lives in Northern California and teaches in the creative writing programs at Mills College and Goddard College, and she's here today to talk about her latest book out from Ost Press entitled The Brick House, picked by John Madera as one of his most anticipated small press releases of 2017. The Brick House is an illuminated book, a book of text and image about a house where people go to dream. Inspired by Calvino's Invisible Cities and Kawabata's House of Sleeping Beauties, as well as by Armenian illuminated manuscripts, Markham commissioned Afghan-American artist and writer Fozia Karimi to create 10 original drawings to accompany the text. Ricky Ducournay calls The Brick House fierce, fearlessly erotic, and always unforeseeable. And Carolina de Robertus adds, The Brick House is a work of piercing beauty and visionary power. With spare, exquisite lyricism, Markham lays bare the raw hungers, horrors, and joys of human life as only the most enduring literature can. Welcome to Between the Covers, Micheline Aharoni and Markham. Thank you. It's great to be here. So you, you cite both traditional uh, illuminated manuscripts and then uh, William Blake's revival of them in a different context as influences for, for the Brick House. And I was hoping you could speak to um, the role of illuminated manuscripts as they were in religious texts, the ways in which uh, you saw Blake um, recontextualizing them, and then how those two influences uh, might inform some of your considerations in, in this book. So I wrote this book a decade ago, actually, and I, or I sort of conceived of it at least a decade ago. It took a long time not only to finish, but really to find a home, because um, I guess because in some ways it's a strange book. I mean, it's, some, it's not, it, it is, I think of it as a novel, but it's not a conventional one, I suppose. There's no narrative through line. There's not a lot of, there's no characters, really. It's not character-driven, et cetera. But... Um, this is what I can remember. I became really, I mean, I, I, I'm interested in, in Blake's work, but it's really dense work, as you probably know. And um, there's something about the ways in which he, he sort of took this old, um, I mean, I guess medieval uh, tradition and reimagines it in his own way, out, you know, um, and makes these books. He himself saw visions, I guess, and so he writes these poems, and then all, and they're matched with the visions. And he and then he developed new techniques as well to make the plates for the books. Um, there was something so beautiful about about that and about what he does and how that they're not illustrations um, in his work, but illuminations. And so I guess I am sort of I'm realizing in ways that one gets to know oneself better through the many years of making books that I'm really interested in how image and text work together um, and the space that opens up in the imagination when image and text are almost contrapuntal or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I often have included photographs in my work. To, uh, and in this case, um, Fosia, who is also a dear friend and incredibly talented artist, um, was my student at the time, and I saw her work when I went to her house. And she often actually draws out of her dreams, and they're these really 
just whimsical, beautiful pieces. And I, I asked her at that time if she would illuminate this because I have absolutely zero skill <laughs> as a visual artist, which is why I often include photographs. Um, but in this case, um, I wanted to try my hand at something like this because it's a book of dreams. And it seemed really, I don't know if conducive is exactly the right word, but it seemed like the right um, approach. Um, and also at that time, I went to Yerevan. Uh, I think it was for the second time. And I went to the, um, the museum of the book. And Armenians are people of the book and, and, this, and, and for whom books are very important. And in fact, during the genocide, there's all these stories of people who were sent on these death marches. And if they could carry anything, they carried the gospel. They carried, And many of those books are illuminated. Um, and I got to see a bunch of them when I was in Yerevan. And you're not supposed to take pictures, but I had my phone with me, and I like took all these pictures illegally and then sent them to Fosia. Um, and so that also was a part of like looking at the old Armenian books, looking at Blake, thinking about Blake. Uh, Fosia and I often would go to museums together and 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 look at illuminated books and and just working together in a way. Although she completely came up with the artwork from the manuscript, a very early version, um, but it was also our our, our collaboration. I don't know if that answers your question, but it does. Yeah, and and there's this line from Blake where he says, um, "Awakening man from the sleep of reason." Right, and that seems to link this idea of illumination versus illustration. This the fact that you're writing specifically about dreams. Do you think there's a, a connection between the difference between illustration and illumination and um, waking life and, and dream life in the sense that a dream isn't going to be an illustration of, of your life, but it's going to essentially perhaps be an illumination through the ways in which there's gaps between what you dream and what you live? Interesting. I hadn't thought about it in quite that way. I mean, dreams are definitely heavily, we might say, image-driven, right, and symbolic in a sense. Like, and, they're, and they're strange, and they work with space and time in ways which are which are interesting and strange, much like novels can, um, which is what I love about the novel, that it allows for things to be together, adjacent really, that in the so-called real world are not, even though they're in relationship. And I guess I'm kind of, I am interested in that, about how I, I sense these connections and relationships, and I don't see them in the, in 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 the world in a way. I see them in the world, I don't see them represented, and I often am trying to do that in my book. And um, and I, I wonder if, too, like when I think about like image and text, I'm often seeking, like, how can, you know, when you read something and you have that moment of the aesthetic shock, right, or the, the wonder or the awe or the re-seeing or the awakening, um, there's something about image and text together that... I think forwards that or make uh, something about it that it can happen. I mean, it does with Blake. And it's also never reducible, right? It's never, you can't reduce it down as, as Carl Jung might say, the symbol is never reducible to one or two meanings. Yeah. And I love that too, the, the, the possibilities for reverberation, you know, outside of what he would call reason. Um, yeah. So we're we're given a hint right away with with the three epigraphs uh, by Melville, Borges, and Eckhart hmm. that the book is going to engage with a relationship between uh, the exterior and the inner or interior landscape, the inner and the outer. Eckhart says it is not outside; it is inside, wholly within. And Borges adds, 
he understood that modeling the incoherent and vertiginous matter of which dreams are composed was the most difficult task that a man could undertake, much more difficult than weaving a rope out of sand or coining the faceless wind. I'm, I'm curious to hear just a little bit about your interest and or history with dreams. They've played a, a crucial role in, in other books of yours also. For instance, when I think of uh, A Brief History of Yes, they believe they met through dreaming it into reality. Um, so what compelled you in this case, unlike your other books, to, to sort of construct a book of dreams? And what is your history with, with them personally? About, I think, 12 or 13 years ago, I can't remember exactly, I went up to Port Townsend for the first time to teach at Goddard. Um, could have been more than that, maybe. And um, I, anyway, lots of things were happening in my personal life, and so I took a second job and I went up there. And the program was just starting at Port Townsend. And it's, um, Port Townsend is pr pretty remote. It's about two hours from Seattle. And our program is housed on a, f a former military fort. And when I got there, right before I left, I got very sick. And I didn't know anybody, and I flew up there, and I got really even sicker <laughs> flying. I got there, and because I was so sick, I couldn't do what I was supposed to do when I was there. And I think I had to go up a day early for a training. But in any case, what ended up happening is the person who ran the program at the time took me to where I was staying. It was this huge brick building, um, which used to house this, the soldiers, apparently. And I was the only person in there. And it's enormous. I mean, I don't just this enormous building. It's dark. It was winter. And they put me in there. And I was in there um, very ill by myself for one night because uh, no one else was there yet. I can't remember. And that building was pretty terrifying in and of itself. It was like had that old terrible green paint on the inside that all those old military buildings had, and the fort was like really half abandoned. Um, anyway, that night I had terrible dreams. I had pretty much the worst nightmares of my life. It's maybe more than you want to know. But, um, and the weird thing about those nightmares, they were very, very violent, but I woke up in the morning and not only was I scared, I knew they weren't mine. I've had nightmares before. Mm. I just, they were not my dreams. It was like, I just knew it. And yeah. um, and then there's lots of stories afterwards as to what happened in that room. And later on, um, other people who slept in that room also had nightmares and we even stopped using the building. But um, but so as as a person, I was like, oh, this is terrible. <laughs> I, don't, I hate this. But the artist in me or the writer in me was like, well, that's kind of interesting. It just got me thinking about how houses hold energies. And so none of the dreams that I had that night are in, are in this book, but the concept came to me, the idea of, of thinking about, and I always, in each book, I'm always sort of keeping myself entertained, I suppose, or wanting to grow. And, um, and so I wanted, to, I wanted to write a little bit more off of Kawabata, much more than Calvino, actually, although I know it says Calvino on the back cover. But, but Kawabata's House of the Sleeping Beauties, do you know that book? Mm -hmm. That book has so much to do with, like, a house like, and what happens in the house. And, I was, and, and suddenly I was like, oh, I want to do this thing about a house where people go to dream. That's where the idea came from. The dreams themselves, I forget now. They're all from different places. Uh, I don't know that many of them are mine. I was also traveling a lot at the time and going up to Alaska, the southeast of Alaska, and um, I had never really been in a wild place before where 
where the 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 bears are still there and the moose. I mean, so the, the megafauna are still there and in situ, as it were, and um, and that really changed me. Um, and I was spending time actually in the Hawaiian Islands as well. So, and the, there's some of those are in. So I was thinking a lot about environmental uh, degradation. I was thinking about the plastics in the ocean. This is before people were talking about the gyre, which now I think people talk about the gyres around the world. Anyway, does that answer your question? Yeah, no. And I, I wanted to ask you about the about incorporating dreams into into stories, which uh-huh. in a, in a I mean in the most like conventional wisdom that's sort of a contemporary taboo right so the argument being that it's as uninteresting to put a dream in a story as it is to hear a friend tell you the dream they had the night before um that there's no stakes there's no rules in a dream um so how how do you put how do you put dreams into a story um but even though i hear those taboos for me at least as a reader i um I still gravitate towards remembering the most memorable dream sequences in stories. I was curious if you if you had any acquaintance with either dream literature or l- literature that has dreams in it, um, or if there were craft questions or considerations for you in how you wanted to present them. I know you mentioned this one that you're you're looking at. Um, dreams within a specific space? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I guess I have heard that you're not supposed to put dreams in books. I don't know where I heard it from, and I don't know who made that rule up, but I don't understand rules <laughs> for um, writing books. That doesn't make any sense to me. Um, and I don't think I've written a book where I haven't put a dream in. But I mean, you know, what makes a piece of writing good or interesting or that's really the question. It's like, you know, if we were musicians, we'd be like, well, can you bring it or not? You know, right. that's that's it. That's it. And that's it for me. I don't I don't understand. I mean, I always say to my students, I've been teaching writing for a long time now, 16 years or something. You know, there's no manual for the making of a book. I, I mean, if there were one, I would sell it to them or tell them to go buy it rather and save their money. There's practice, there's apprenticeship, there's reading, and then there's one's own inklings, obsessions, visions. You know, what is, what is, what is the project of literature? I mean, I think, it's, I think it remains like a, an artist's vision, you know? And yeah, sometimes like there's failure. I mean, I'm, not, I'm sure I've failed many times, but at the end of the day, who can you really ask but yourself, like, you know? Did I please myself? Did I do my best? Um, and whatever one's individual sense of like integrity is, and those are really personal questions. Yeah. Um, and the ones I think about a lot, actually. I mean, quite a lot. But I have to. I just don't. I don't know. I just. I. I don't understand when people tell you what you can and cannot do. I would never be have written I don't write books because I want to follow somebody's rules about what you can and cannot do. Yeah. I would rather make money <laughs> <laughs> in a corporation or something. If you had to follow rules. Yeah, you know? of course. Yeah. You know, I mean Yeah. Yeah. You know. One of the interesting things regarding rules that I that I think is really interesting about mm-hmm. the brick house is if we think of dreams not having stakes or rules, or at least not having the same rules, they have a different logic than living. 
but um, the brick house is a place where people come in your book to to have dreams. Um, it has a ton of rules. So uh, even though it's a place where you go to ha- to enter in this other space with a different logic, there is a very explicit logic to to the brick house itself. In order to be able to to go there and have your dream, um, you can't use sleep aids. Uh, you can't enter another dreamer's room. Each visitor is only permitted one night. And uh, I, I was just curious about that. If if you saw that, if you saw that scaffolding as a, as part of the house, like is, is that is that the way you ho- you house the dreams by having this sense of exterior order to allow this sort of other order? I don't know. I know that that was there from the beginning. I mean, that, you know, I, if I were to think of someone like Calvino, his his process for writing The Invisible Cities, he has that essay about it. It's really wonderful. And he just wrote these pieces for years. And then eventually it kind of heaved it together and started to think about, well, how do they hold? And what's the form that holds them together? And then he com- his conversation of Kublai Khan and Marco Polo and, and all of that. And, and the European imagination, in a way, which is so formed by Marco Polo, who then influences, like, Columbus and all these guys afterwards, who, like, come to the, you know, discover the new world and see what they had read in a book of fictions yeah. <laughs> from hundreds of years before. I love that. I mean, it's like, what are we but a series of fictions, you know? This is why I'm probably the worst person to answer questions about my book sometimes, is I have to go back and look. It's like, I don't know why I sensed that there had to be this outside structure for something which is then has all of that, yeah, like, fluidity and illogic and then there has to be some way to follow, um, to read it. Yeah. So that even though I don't write books for any particular reader, books imply readers, and I'm its reader. But it was a really hard book to finish, maybe from that sense. Like I couldn't, I was always trying to find the right way to get that book to work. Because each dream kind of has to work on its own, and yet it also has to work with, it has to have a unity and a coherence. And it was, it was not obvious I'm hoping you'll read a little section about the structure of houses that are not the brick house. My wife now carries my corpse back toward the house. The house is one of a hundred such mythical structures inside of the walls of the island subdivision. The street directs us toward our dwelling, and each one measures the correct quantity of feet wide and white-lined and yellow dashes, and the proper manner to turn left, turning lanes, accompanied by lampposts and traffic signals at regulated intervals. Here the laws and lawns are ideally established, and the manicured green plots line up perfectly in front of every abode, and are of the same species of fescue grasses that were first imported from the African savanna by Australian traders 150 years ago. The houses are like barricades, although they do not protect against the barbarians as the old towers once did. Rather, it is their duty to decrease the circulation of sight, which they accomplish mightily just as it is the duty of the roadways to decrease the expanse of the imagination over the land on unformed and as yet untrod footpaths. The houses, walls, streets, bright lamps, and even the non-native sedge accomplish their considerable task with relative ease, which is, in reality, to screen from visitors and residents alike the nature of the island, just as pornography will distort for the viewer the true breadth and ecstasy of Eros. She brings me back here to my home, and now that I have died, I am able to see things as they are. 
the roles and set pieces of the theater I inhabited on the island during my lifetime. I can see the sham of it, its shabbiness, the empty comical gestures of my wife and children and all of my neighbors. Only the sunlight and warm archipelago air and moonlight and new green growth on vines and trees and the surf and seabirds remained unadulterated despite the developments contrary to their nature. And when the monsoon came, and when the waters rose higher than my two-story house, and when the winds tore the roofs off of the houses and blew the tarmac out into the sea, and the sky came down in a tidal wave as the wind opened its mouth and held up its fangs to bite off the houses at their cores, the sea waters rising further, and the trees leaning down like giants with giant fingers to break, to cut open... Then it was that I understood not only how the weather would eventually remove the glossy sham and silly painted lines and rules and tightly corseted ladies with their ideas of what to wear and how to looks and how the children should behave, but more than this, that it would release us, as it did my rotting corpse, back into a watery grave. That the island would eventually throw off its inhabitants and even its landmass and return like a child to the bosom of the mother, to the sea and the seafloor. We've been listening to Micheline Aharoni and Markham read from The Brick House. So if we take this motif from the epigraphs of interior, exterior, and also what you were talking about, about uh, the way place can manifest visions or nightmares, um, obviously a house can create an interior and exterior. And this idea that you, that, that you present in this, in this excerpt of houses being barricades against sight, and roads against imagination, that the structures we build can either further or prevent seeing or further prevent fellowship or, and connection. And so mm. these houses that you're describing are sort of the op, the anti-brick house in a way. Like they're, they're <laughs> preventing seeing. They're, they're yeah. intended to. Even though the, narr- the person telling us can see what they're doing, um, the people in them are intentionally sort of blinding themselves. And, and it reminded me of something you said once in an interview about your experiencing uh, your experience growing up in Los Angeles, as, uh, of being a sense of placelessness or mm. disembodiment, um, which I imagine y- you might argue arises from the design of the place, right? Or the lack of design, but then something. Yeah, I'm often struck by how I don't know if you are, but I was recently in. Actually, in Texas, went to an art museum, and I'm forgetting the architect's name, but the museum, the building, it's a Japanese architect, was so beautiful. And we walked in. I was actually with Fosia. We walked in, and, like, the way that the energy in the room was because of the angles of the building and the glass and the light, you just felt you felt it. I felt it. So that is not how I feel most of the time inside of most buildings and not how I felt growing up in Los Angeles or even this passage here is, is inspired by a subdivision um, in Maui and how the subdivision in Maui looks exactly like the subdivisions I grew up with in L.A. And they, they don't make me feel good. I mean, it was all I knew, so it was hard for me to even know that buildings, not only do they maybe have potencies and energies, but they affect us they just, I mean, I, I'm, sh- I'm not an, an architect or, and I certainly, I haven't even studied architecture, but just this, the ways in which these angles and, and the material and what they, what they do to us. And also when they're so, when they're constructed to be so, um, so out of harmony with the place on which they're, you know, built is also so strange. 
and seems and then America is such a strange. I mean, if I just speak of the United States or where I live in, you know, a new, a pretty new settlement, is so strange. <laughs> All of it's just so strange. Yeah. Um, things on top of things, and then you we know like in L.A. Uh, I knew nothing about Los Angeles. I knew nothing about California. I mean, I never learned any history about the place I lived in, which is very, it creates, what's that? I don't even know what the word is for this disconnect that is created when that happens. Because the land affects us so much, the weather, the light, and our abodes, you know. You may know more about it than me, but. I don't. You know, I just, I, th- I don't think, I think most of the time I don't think about it because I just stop, you know, I just, we cut it off. But like every school I've ever been in and taught in, they're, they don't make you feel good. Yeah. The spaces are, are helping you cut yourself off in a yeah. way. Yeah. From your, from your senses, your body, your feelings. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's. I, I wanted to read the description of Babylon in the, in the book, The Myth of the Eternal Return, mm-hmm. uh, and then ask you, because, uh, because it feels like you're sort of presenting the brick house as an alternative way of seeing, like an, uh, an alternate building that creates a different possibility of sight. So, oh, that's um, nice. And, you know, anything I have to say, I mean, I'm sure this is not helpful, but, like, I do all of my thinking in the writing, yeah. and I think I'm sometimes I'm, that's why it's hard to articulate outside of it what am I thinking because I'm really thinking in the writing mm-hmm. or you know as Morrison said writing is inquiring and, yeah. and so when I'm writing a book I just do tons of reading and tons of research and I go way in and then I forget everything does that happen to you I just can't remember it yeah I mean that happens to me but I but if you're forgetting everything you're doing a, a pretty admirable job okay, in the moment okay, good, good. Um, what page I'm just going to read this to you oh great actually. okay so this is from the myth of the eternal return The map of Babylon shows the city at the center of a vast circular territory bordered by a river, precisely as the Sumerians envisioned paradise. This participation by urban cultures in an archetypal model is what gives them their reality. And what's interesting to me, it's interesting to me that um, it also reminds me of this Ursula Le Guin quote that says, children know perfectly well that unicorns aren't real, but they also know that books about unicorns, if they are good books, are true books. And so we have this, these two quotes seem to be arguing that a world without the imagination is a less real world, and that perhaps this, a city is truer, is more real if it acknowledges the imagined. Uh, and I wondered about that in, in regards to this structure, that the brick house in, in the brick house. Uh, but also, like you talked about how these structures, say, in Maui, aren't reflecting the land, but maybe they're also not reflecting human imagination either. Yeah, or very few human imaginations, probably whatever the forces were that brought those buildings into being economics, I'm guessing, as much as anything. Or- yeah. Well, what do you, but what do you think about these two quotes that... Um, that put together uh, the idea of the imagination and reality in a way when maybe more commonplace usages of both would put them as in opposition. Whatever people call reality, to me, if you press on a lot of it, seems like a series of fictions that a lot of people believe in. Does that make them real. I mean, they certainly can carry powers and they can do all kinds of things, sometimes terrible things. Um, but it doesn't make them true. I mean, we all agree to many lies. 
and um, as a collective, both nationally, internationally, et cetera. And I've always been interested in like pushing on and pre getting a sense of what is what is what, what you might call the real. Well, dreams are part of reality. We all close our eyes for several hours, hopefully at least, you know, six to whatever it is, ten a night, and we dream. That's part of our reality. Um, I don't think of it as separate from reality. Yeah. I don't understand those divisions, and I think they're, they're false ones. Um, and I think that, you know, I think so much of what imaginative literature is trying to, to, to think about is what is it? What is life? What is the real? And what are we here? What, what are we doing? Um, and being witness to its times. And like realism as a style, often for me, is the style least capable of contending in some ways with, because of, for, for various reasons, of, of what it is, what the real is. Mm -hmm. um, I like that. That's, you know, yeah. She's great, Ursula Clayley. I was at a table with her once many years ago. I can't wait to read your book. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. She was a really extraordinary person. She was an extraordinary person. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I, that I really enjoyed in reading The Brick House is the way you describe the house. Uh, so contrary to this subdivision that you read us about, um, there's a lot of imagery around eyes and around seeing in the book. So mm -hmm. the windows of the brick house look out like eyes. The mm -hmm. house is described as having 13 eyes. We also get references to the blind prophet Teresius to a blind horse, to black-eyed salmon, to the moon as a white eye, um, all s sort of connecting this idea of, of seeing or not seeing. I was hoping you, you would just read a, a, a one paragraph, actually, on, on page 39 for us that would give an example of this. Sure. This is from The Full Moon. I stand in front of my home with my neighbors in the city of B., the air is red-tinted, and I look up into the night-red sky and see the full moon. The full moon looks down at me with its white eye. There is no break to the looking and the looker, so that the moon is looking up at the moon, and I look down at me, and we are traveling out beyond the seeing, and death is looking, and no eye is looking, and happiness is there in the merger, so that the cosmic loneliness ends, and the looker looked, and seer seen, and light lighted, and we have spread out like a black galaxy bird in flight, so that the heart which feeds the blood, the lungs which oxygenate, un. I break the moon's hold, or the moon breaks from me, eye from eye. I am afraid to travel farther, and I look again to my neighbors, continue the story of my day, of loves denied, of the drama of lost employment, of the highest felt feelings of new purchases, new resentments, remembered slights, plumbing problems, recipes for chicken on the bone. The black, white light galaxy behind the red sky, the full white moon still calling continuously. I've been listening to Micheline Aharoni and Markham read from The Brick House. One thing that somebody might not pick up on when they hear you read it is that you use these uh, invented, conjoined words, um, not just in The Brick House, but in a lot of your books. And uh, yeah. so there are these, these negations. So the word in this case is no I, the word no. And the word I, not the I as in the, the organ, but the I as in identity, are one word conjoined. And you have a lot of these negated w conjoined words 
not seeing, not dreamer, not volition, not dying, not eyes. Uh, and it made me think of the Adi Shakara quote that you employ that says, for seeing things as separate is the sole cause of otherness. And the reason why I thought of it is because these invented words feel sort of like Zen koans in a way. Like, um, I wonder if by inviting the negation into the word, it's if that's different than negating the word. Um, so by like allowing the negation into the word, if maybe that's hinting at the limits of language or um, the ways in which the normal use of language might inadvertently create otherness because it's not allowing that opposite somehow. Like if, I, I was just curious about, I know I'm, I'm spinning off into my own um, theorizing, but maybe more simply you could just talk about why you return regularly in your books to these words and, and what function you feel like they, or what effect they're producing. I'm not sure about the effect. I mean, I want to just mention William Faulkner because <laughs> I must. I'm pretty sure I that was something I think I, I noticed in his work when I was obsessed with it a decade ago or 15 years ago. Something around a word and its, yeah, I don't know if negation or its opposite, which is not exactly its opposite, its unness. I was... There was some real energy in that for me, and I don't know if it's that um, I, you know, that I myself. I mean, I don't understand things, and and I have this sense that there's a lot of lying or half lying about things all the time in in whatever our collective. I mean, obviously in politics, <laughs> but not only politics. Um, and I'm trying. I think sometimes I'm trying to get language to to open. To, you know, again, that's probably a big Faulkner thing. He does it so beautifully, like to try to try to write about what I sense. Um, and sometimes language, rather than rather than really accessing what I think is true or beautiful or real, papers over it in a way. It it um, it obfuscates. And so I'm always like, what's, you know, how do you crack it open and, and make it do more and have this energy or so that it allows us at its best to see again, to see anew, to not be complacent, not only in whatever in our lives, but really in our own imaginations, you know, our, keep running down the tracks that we've gone down before. And then we're not, we're not, we're not seeing. I wonder if, if these words that we've never encountered before and we're not quite sure how they function in the sentence uh, if if something about creating that unknowing or not knowing or mystery is part of the of being able to connect, like when you're talking about language, maybe a flatter language being something that would be obscuring to connection with the other or with otherness. Um, if something about the tolerance of 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 not knowing entirely is seems to me connected to to these words. Yeah, and I just think that words um, get used or said or something, they lose their meaning. They don't really mean very much. I mean, sometimes I feel like what I'm trying to do is re-energize a word. And it's it's hard. It's like, like the word genocide. <laughs> That's like really almost impossible to use in a work of literature. The word pogrom 
Isaac Babel in his story, um, Story of My Dovecote. Have you read that story? Mm -hmm. It's just such a beautiful story. What amazes me about that story is how it ends on that word. It's there at the end. But all the whole story has built us to the word. So the mm. word has meaning again or has vibration or something. It has energy, emotion, a sense of realness. And I feel like sometimes words lose that probably through advertising and politics and the universities and, you know, whatever else. Um, so I don't know, maybe that's partly what we're doing as literary artists is trying to get words to have again, the energies that are latent in them, but get, get dimmed. Um, and sentences have to have it. It's, you know, the musicality, the rhythm and, and just like these vibrations or energies. I mean, they are sounds too. Right. They're physical. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, a lot of my writing is following my ear at first, and then I spend a long time going, what does that mean? <laughs> we got all those <laughs> words on the page. It's like, it also has to, you have to get the meaning to come too. But sometimes I write things and I don't understand and I'll think about it. And it's not like I don't spend so much time revising and editing. I do. But sometimes something has to be away because I just, I just sense that it does and I'll leave it. Yeah. Well, if you if I haven't tired you out with reading, so I'm gonna ask. No, I I hope I'm just not reading badly. I'm just like, oh, no, you're I'm going right. too slow. <laughs> um, if you could read, um, I marked out a section for you on page twenty one, which is sort of on this on this motif which we haven't really discussed around vision in relationship to nature, and I, I want to sort of follow a little down a little rabbit hole around this. Okay, well, this is great. He was alone, and the landscape was barren of trees, but it was obvious to him that at one time there had lived many trees in this earth, and not because he could see the stumps of trees, for there were none, but because he felt the keen absence of the wind's arches and resting places, the unecho of bird songs and untrippings, not trillings from branch to peak, the insects unloudly unsuspended in midair triumph of leaves and trunk and vine. He was able to see the not seeable on the road by means of the shivers up his spine and the hackles raised on the back of his neck. And in this manner, he could see animals and plants and men. He could see grief, and it was like the seam of the horizon, badly sewn, thick blue, white, black, and scarred upon his cornea. The sun beat down upon the nape of his neck. He sweated. He felt ill. He wanted to vomit onto the tarmac and looked upon the black earth before him and the blue-white powdery sky above. Then the earth changed to resemble a black and white photograph, the kind that men used to make when they printed chemical images on paper, so that he saw a silver gelatin land and sky carved among shadows in grays and blacks. Only the whites of men's eyes remained in high contrast. He continued walking, and the tarmac did not burn his feet, for he was used to such things as the perpetual absence of shoes, and so the soles of his feet had long ago hardened and cracked and dulled from exposure and use. A car drives past him, and then there are thousands of cars moving alongside him, and the cars move without drivers, for he remains the only man. They rush headlong toward the gray horizon and back toward some origin which he cannot see behind him, because here in this place there is no beginning, only the tattered seam in front of him, only the forward motions as he progresses, a pilgrim on an undirted road toward an end which is also unreachable, although he has been walking since early in the century." perhaps earlier even than that, since the beginnings of this new era. 
He is a city man without shoes or hat. He breathes deeply, and the car exhaust is bitter in his mouth and nostrils. The black soot collects beneath his nails and inside his nose and mouth, and as dew once did on the leaves of trees. He cannot stop his forward movement. It is as if he were a dynamo, mechanical, electrical. There is only motion. He is not sure why. He marches toward the black and gray skyline, toward an eschatology that awaits him there. He believes that he will reach his destination, and he will become rich and happy and live by the sea in a clean, tight metal fortress. What is the sea? He has by now forgotten about blue and water. The evergreen trees have also faded from his imagination. He forgets the tactile except for the tarmac slapping his feet, or his feet, rather, which push against the rocks and form tar. He has forgotten about his groin. He forgot many years ago about books and his family. He forgets about skin, loses his skin now on the pilgrimage. His organs shine outward to the black sky, but he cannot see it or tell of it, for his voice has dissipated, the vision snatched back inside the well of his white-black eyes. He smells the burning tarmac. It melts beneath his feet, and soon each step that he takes takes him farther down into tar and rocks, as if he were walking through black, thick, and burning cold snow. He continues the journey. He is determined. He will arrive at the apogee one day. He knows it. He can smell it, for he has mysteriously retained his sense of smell. He smells his stink. He smells the car exhaust. The cars have also vanished from the scene, but they too persist in their absence. He is the blind, mute walker. He heads toward his destiny with a grand gesture. What awaits him there? If the man were not blind, he would be able to see two things. His liver protruding from his spine like a hunk of gray-brown cheese, and in the distance, a towering gale. It runs down the road as if a naked fury. It is possessed and writhes. Perhaps it is his mother. He had a mother once, and he was once the young, proud, triumphant son. We're listening today to Micheline Aharoni and Markham read from The Brick House. So, I mean, one of the threads that I, that I see in this book is sort of an alienation from the imaginative and also an, an alienation from place uh, that these people who come to seek out this one night of dreaming are, are responding to in a sense. But also the book is very explicitly about environmental destruction. We get the life cycle of a red plastic coffee stirrer and we get the subtropical gyre in part of the book, a, phon- a phenomenon that has a dreamlike name, but is a r- very real thing that no one is engaged with. So it's another place of not seeing mm. this this fantastical but very real thing in the ocean. So I was hoping you could talk a little bit about, I read about your trip to Alaska being part of this, uh, informing this life cycle of plastic. Um, but also maybe you can just talk about the, the um, subtropical gyre, which I'm sure most people don't even know what that is and, and w- what it's doing here. Yeah, and there was something you said, David, right off the bat that was interesting that I wanted to say something about. About the alienation of from the imaginative from, and from and place. place. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, it's, um, and I think that is what the book is thinking about in some ways, is, is, and in some ways the way that I know it is because of my experience as an American. There's um, an, an, an experience of... I mean, yeah, I guess we spoke of it, of growing, of this alienation 
from place and the ways that maybe it's our economic system. You know, I mean, I, I walk around, I'm like, this, this is crazy. Th- like these fictions of the things we're doing, they make no sense. Plastic. It's, it's completely nuts. To, to have a stir, I mean, there's a dream in the book because I was fixated on it. To have an object which will last 50 to 200,000 years or more and have its use be at the time of stirring it in your coffee and then throwing it away, it doesn't go away. You know, the earth is a biosphere. I mean, it's like, and so I just, I think a decade ago when I was writing this, I started just thinking about things like that. Because when I was up in Alaska, um, you, we found plastic and like tennis shoes from Japan. I mean, we were hundreds of miles, we were just miles from any other human settlement and there was nothing nearby. And then you realize, I realized um, that, that our, our planet is a small, deeply interconnected place. I just, I had that experience traveling um, uh, by boat two different times that like the illusion of the city, the illusion that food is in a market, you know, as if it weren't built on an extremely complex system of interconnectedness, relatedness, and and of course we have these economies. And I just, I had that, I just knew it. I was like, this, this can collapse. We're not seeing it. You can live in a city in the buildings and the, and then all these styles and clothes and everything we get obsessed with. And it's like, it can all really quickly, you know, hit, it'll, it'll, it'll go, it'll go. I mean, now we're yeah. seeing it, and people are talking in this way now, but this was before I, I was not seeing it so much in the main news, and, and then I became obsessed with the gyre. Now there are people who have talked about it, and there's quite a bit, a bit of reporting on it. I mean, can, and, you, can you tell us what the gyre is for people who don't so the know? So there are many of them, and let's see if I can remember. The, sub, the gyre that's near Hawaii, which is the one that I became obsessed with, near meaning like not next door, but it's, it's close to it. I can't remember how many miles. Um, it's closest to one of the atolls, which also is in the book, um, that I think the United States owns. Um, it's about the size, or used to be about the size of Texas. And it's it's these places in, on the earth in the oceans where however the patterns of the ocean are, they become dead spots or where, the, where things are not moving. And they're filling and are filled with plastic. I mean, just filled, like feet down of plastics. The thing about plastic is it just gets smaller. It doesn't go away. And so the birds are eating it. The, the fish are eating it, the whales are eating it. I recently wrote a small piece on this whale found, I can't remember where, and it, you know, the, and animals are like dying of starvation. They opened up the whale's guts, its stomach, and it had like, you know, an engine cover, you know, 800 plastic bags, a hose, a bunch of children's toys in, in the gut of this one whale. Yeah. And, um, and there are many gyres now. I, I don't have the exact figures on you know, all of them are where they are, but, and they're creating havoc. The thing that scares me about us as humans and the imagination around this is it seems to me like we can get excited as a species about trying to come up with a technological fix. Like we'll figure out a bacteria that we're then going to unleash that can eat plastic in the ocean. Right. Whereas it would require no technology at all to just stop making plastic. We've, our, our entire existence on the planet, like 99.99999% of our lives have been without plastic. So it would just require 
a backing up, right. like a restraint, which seems like particularly complex for humans to do. Like, yeah. like we seem to, um, I don't know if we're wired or maybe it's just corporate capitalism is wired this way right. rather than humans. Cause I could imagine maybe other cultural iterations in the past wouldn't have been wired this way. But, but I wonder when the solution from a logical perspective is a simple right. solution. It's very right. simple. I know many things. And that's why children see so clearly, right? Cause yeah. they see it. They're like, why are you doing that? That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> why would you put poison into your food and then eat it? Mm, doesn't make any <laughs> sense. Right. But this thing you're saying about restraint yeah. Um, no, we, we don't restrain. I mean, that's that dream is about that. It's like a forward movement. It will play out. There's no, I mean, I, I believe we can change. I do. And I believe consciousness can rise and things change. They can change. But, um, but we're not good at restraining ourselves. And I don't think other species are either. I mean, when I, that's one thing when you talk to like, talk to like my biologist friends and that's not like the, the strong suit of many species. Like, oh, I'm going to restrain myself. No, probably any species would try to do, like, to right. take over their habitat. Right. But we're an interesting species. We're very young. I mean, how long have we been around, Homo sapiens? 200,000 years, maybe a little bit longer. Very young. And we're, like, on the brink, whatever that brink might be. Maybe it's 500 years out, I don't know, of, of disaster. And maybe it's 50 years. We're... You know, we are exceptionally, I mean, we only walked out of East Africa, they estimate, 70,000 years ago and mm -hmm. walked all over the earth and then made boats and this sort of thing. But so, but then we have this capacity, which is the imagination, which I don't know that other species have language and I'm not, I'm not diminishing any other species. I don't believe in a, this dominion thing at all, but, but there's something about this thing that we have through the imagination and language that is extraordinary for good and you know for things that aren't so good we yeah. will organize around these fictions which maybe you know not so great i mean like what is racism it's a fiction like we're the same species all of it is fictionalized invention i mean i'm not saying a lot of horrible things don't come as consequence they do they have and they persist but it doesn't make them true it doesn't mean they weren't based on a lie well, I want to I want to take a, a strange um, I don't know if it's a detour or a pivot, but I want to I want to see about a connection in this book between. So we have the we have the dreaming, we have the environmental destruction, the absence of seeing in physical structures, and we also have this connection between um, what seems like a connection between the love and the sex in in the brick house and the story of nature's destruction in in, in some regard. Um, because it feels like the way that love and sex are portrayed is as if love has seasons, as if it has a life cycle. And we, we've, we're going through the life cycle of a, of a red coffee, plastic coffee stirrer in the book, <laughs> but we're also going through the love, the life cycle of, of romantic love. We mm -hmm. have chapters titled love, new, new love, the end of love, the end of the love affair, one, two, and three, the end of the marriage. And much like in your previous book, The Brief History of Yes, The Brick House feels like it's creating this nexus to me, like a love-nature-dream nexus. Um, so in, in The Brief History of Yes, it was barnacles and songbirds interwoven with a relationship falling apart. And then dreams were playing a role in how the relationship came together. But I, I, I didn't know if you had any thoughts on, um, you know, the subtropical gyre 
the the earth growing sick from us and this and this sort of um, life cycle like iteration of of the beginnings and ends of romantic relationships in in the brick house i mean i don't i don't know i don't know if i i i don't know if i can answer that question because i haven't thought about it like that and that's a really interesting question i mean i think that's maybe what time and 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 good reading and distance gives but I always write these books from like deep inside and then slowly try to come up and then go, okay, well, it has to work as a book and it's got to have like, but I, it doesn't mean that I know why some things are together in a way either. Yeah. I'm just thinking about them in the way that I think in this. Well, the way that I, I experienced the dreams in relationship to this partly was because it feels like this book, um, it's about love and solitude in a way, but it doesn't feel like it's just about solitude post-love, but it also feels almost like the solitude of post-nature. Huh. Like if you were to, if there was no more out there, if all you had was the interior of your own mind, mm-hmm. so you're in sort of a, the, the negative of, like the negative version of a dream, mm-hmm. uh, like you were trapped in sort of your own self-reflecting narrative mm-hmm. back to you the solitude of that, of not being confronted by otherness. Because when I think about, that brings me back also in a way to those those strange words you create. When I was talking about how maybe there's something about them being beyond our grasp, Mm -hmm. like we can't entirely understand their function. Mm -hmm. If there's something important about there being actual things in the world that are not, whose function we don't entirely understand, if if the not knowing is part of fellowship in a way in in the world. Um, I don't know if I don't know where I'm going, but I, I don't know because I don't know either. I mean, I think that's what you know. Whatever the 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 great sense of awe and mystery that one has, even just like with the moon. Like, I, did you see the eclipse recently? I didn't. I didn't see. I didn't it. see the lunar eclipse. A friend of mine did, and he's a photographer, and he said he had this moment. It was so extraordinary. But he didn't take a picture, even though he had his camera. He just was in it, in that exchange of whatever happens when we're really present to the natural. I mean, we're always in the natural. We are of the earth. You know, we are earthlings. But somehow we have this capacity, I guess, because of this imagination or whatever we do and our language to reflect, to uh to, you know, Rilke would say to praise. What is what are we here to do? Praise to look to be the seers and look at our look not just at each other but at our at our planet, at the Earth, and see it. It's it's so beautiful. I mean, I've been reading Coleridge's notebooks, and he like spends a page on a fern. You know, just the the beauty. I mean, there's so much beauty and wonder in so many of the Earth's every systems, animals. I mean, just like plants, like what is photosynthesis? Does anyone really like we don't just what is it? What is gravity? I mean, I mean, you think about these things, it's like we don't know. We're here and we're witness and we're incredibly innovative and smart animals. <laughs> but at the same time, um, at the same time, we seem anxious and fearful. And that that anxiety and fear gets pushed into um, into ways which are dangerous 
tends to consolidate, I guess, movement towards some people having power, a lot of power over other people. And mm. this is, I think, not good. I mean, I'm reading The Master and Marguerite right now. The book is all about that, you know, the day the devil comes to town. Well, the devil shows you, you know, the devil... There's a quote. Do you know this book at all? Yeah, I love that book, actually. I love this book, too. I haven't read this translation. But you know that his epigraph from Faust at the front? Going off here a little bit, but I was just reading it on the airplane and um, made me think of Donald Trump, actually. So the epigraph to The Master and Margarita, which is, a, you know, this book that took 10 years to write, and it's basically about authoritarianism in a way, and Stalinism, and many other things. It's mm -hmm. extraordinary, by Bulgakov. But at the front of it, it has an epigraph from Faust, right, from Goethe's great book, which I can never finish for some reason because it's so hard. But anyway, and the quote is, um, Faust asks Mephistopheles the demon, he says, who are you then? And Mephistopheles the demon says, I am a part of that power which eternally wills evil and eternally works good. I don't know why when I read that, mm. I, it's something that I ha don't, it's like that way of just getting us to move out of how we think and think, like does the evil that he says there, and that's why I thought of Donald Trump, I mean, does Donald Trump just reveal <laughs> us to ourselves? Right. This is, this is who we are right now. This is what we've done. You know, that's part of it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I was thinking about how, like, when he did the State of the Union address, <laughs> apparently they're, they were running advertisements of his corporate donors on the website so you could watch the address and see who was giving him money. Oh, and I was yeah. thinking, well, that's we get upset about that. It's terrible. But in a weird way, that is something that's always happening. Right. Regardless of who the president is. Of course. And it's just an issue of decorum. Right. In that regard. Right. I'm not saying that that's the only difference between Trump and these other presidents because there's... No, some, but he makes you see it. He makes you see some things that we're pretending aren't there. Exactly. Also. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've for years have been struck by in the New York Times, you've been reading this article about a genocide in Rwanda, whatever, when it, that happened. And then there's an ad right next to it of a of, for diamond wedding rings. I mean, it's just, it's weird. Just like those weird, weird things. Yeah. I don't so, know if this is a continuum. I know. You might want to cut all that from this, but <laughs> I just think about, like, you know, what are we doing? Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. We need to see it. We are on a, we are on a collision course. Well, we're not necessarily, but we, we, we have to see, and not just how we treat one another, but this, what we're, how we're living. And he displays to us our greed, our vapidity, our narcissism, our obsession with fame. Um, yeah, he, our, he embodies He does, and he doesn't pretend otherwise. No. And that's, that has been growing in this country. I mean, reality TV is like, you know, all this. So, so maybe that'll be the good that comes, that people will be like, no, this is, this is not, we are not going to do that. You know, we are going to choose differently. We have free will, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. I don't know. Well, I want to I take this idea of, of seeing, uh, of structures that prevent seeing or further it, of, of our awareness around place or a lack of awareness around place, ar around this issue of um, environmental destruction, but also here where we're talking about even the embodiment of certain things in the body of Trump. <laughs> uh, um, I want to talk about bodies 
in relationship to this narrative and then maybe just wonder about whether there's whether there's a link between the absence of bodies in certain narratives and maybe our our absence of seen nature but um there's a nested doll quality to the book so where the physical structure called the brick house is mirroring the physical book called the brick house. Each room of the house is labeled with a letter number and a pictograph, a system that sort of mirrors the text image uh, structure of the physical book. The house has seven rooms. The book has seven chapters. Even though we are talking about dreams, we're also talking about dreaming bodies. Um, It's bodies who come to the house to dream. Uh, the house serves as a body, but it also is described like a body that houses dreams. It uh, has eyes. Um, so you did this interview with Jason DeYoung at Numero Sank, and you mentioned how you've noticed how many books there were where the body doesn't exist, um, where we are with a disembodied mind throughout the entire book. And I, I wondered about your maybe your aesthetic orientation around this because you you write a lot um i would call your writing embodied not just when we're talking about sex and love in the book but but particularly when we're talking about sex in the book i Mm -hmm. would say also so uh, do you see any um i mean talk to us a little bit about about the body in literature and Mm -hmm. like uh, what you've noticed absent and what you feel like you're doing that's, I haven't thought about that in a while. I think in my my early years, you know, I was like, where's the body? And particularly the body of women, probably, um, because um, I was raised Catholic and I and I and even outside of that, just there there's as relates to the body of women. There's so much and that's all being talked about much more now, but. Um, less so than even with feminism and in the 80s and 90s and sort of when I was going to college, but just the shame around the body and, and particularly for women around uh, a woman's uh, vagina, you know. Um, and I've always, like many things, I'm, I don't understand that. I mean, sure, I get it, but it's like it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. So... I think I wanted to, I mean, it's like the mirror in the well, right? Sort of have the bodies and have the terms for a woman's body, which I don't even think I can say on the radio. Um, why shouldn't they be in literature? I mean, some of the oldest art on earth, as far as I know it, are those stones in the form of the labia of a woman, just like those beautiful sculptures of the Virgin, whatever, they're 30,000 years old. So I guess I probably had like this, you know, <laughs> project put the bodies back in um both bodies male female you know the bodies and not just that but i've always it's like you're making me think about these things i haven't thought about them in a while but i don't you know so there's ways in which like you know what i guess jung would say like we have these personas and the mask that we all wear and in my books i've always wanted to be like well why can't it well everything should be why is this censored what the whole thing as it is, like see the world as it is. That includes what happens when you close the door or who you are when you're not in front of people and not just your shadow side, but just the multiple parts of being a human. That's where I felt like this was connected to 
environmental destruction, strangely. Like huh. That's how, interesting. how much we, what we're willing to see and, and describe and what we're not willing to see and describe. Like you say, what's behind the door? Or I could say, what's out in the ocean right. that we're not looking at? Right. But you also, in that same interview, you quote D.H. Lawrence in yeah. an essay apropos Lawrence. of Lady Chatteler's lover. Mm-hmm. And um, he makes this connection that feels like a connection between the body and nature. And I'm just going to read it and um, see what you think. The body's life is the life of sensations and emotions. The body feels real hunger, real thirst, real joy in the sun or snow, real pleasure in the smell of roses or the look of a lilac bush, real anger, real sorrow, real love, real tenderness, real warmth, real passion, real hate, real grief. All the emotions belong to the body and are only recognized by the mind. And then later, Lawrence also says, the Christian religion lost in Protestantism, finally, the togetherness with the universe, the togetherness of the body, the sex, the emotions, the passions with the earth and sun and stars. I thought that was an interesting and not necessarily uh, obvious direction that he takes there Mm -hmm. um, of connecting those two. So in a way it felt, maybe it's an, it feels natural and we don't have to unpack it as much as I would have imagined that, that we would see this questioning about what we're seeing, how we structure, how we build our houses or our roads and what we're ignoring around plastic isn't necessarily a different question than are we willing to have our characters have bodies? I mean, probably every writer and, you know, every has his or her, you know, I guess Emerson would say kind of like plot of soil that she's tilling. And for some reason, that's been part of mine. I mean, I love those essays by Lawrence and they, they kind of turned me on, you know, 15 years ago when I first read them and, um, and he was railing, you know, at the early part of the 19th century, 20th century, um, and I think it's because this, the ways in which we're taught, we have to be taught shame and we have to be taught to be unintegrated. We are, you know, you look at a child and like they're there, all the storms blow through, they're angry, they're this, they're that, you know, but we teach, we have to learn. And so much of the stuff that we learn, then you have to try to unlearn because you're like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Whose idea is that? And what's it for? And where does it come from? Like the origins of ideas. And so many religious ideas, maybe not the teachings of some of the beautiful teachings that come through in, in the main religions, or religion in general and these myths, but the structures, those religious structures are often just about control. I mean, you look at women, the role of women and Catholic, I mean, it's like control and not just controlling women, controlling people in general through these um, sets of ideas. Well, let me return to the, the very first excerpt you read where you said, uh, the houses, walls, streets, bright lamps, and even the non-native sedge accomplish their considerable task with relative ease, which is in reality, reality to screen from visitors and residents alike the nature of the island, just as pornography will distort for the viewer the true breadth and ecstasy of Eros. I think of this in contrast to the Lawrence. So the Lawrence mm. is talking about, I mean, it's in it's a kindred uh sentiment essentially mm-hmm. but it's the opposite so it's talking about the ways we we disconnect ourselves um but it also reminded me of your appearance with michael silverblatt on bookworm for mirror in the well um 
who and he was very enthusiastic about the book. But at the same time, he described aspects of it as pornographic. And I was curious what your response was to that. I mean, because here we're looking at your differentiate, you're putting pornography on the side of like suburban uh, housing structures that blind us. Hmm. And you're putting like um, the brick house or this museum you described where the light comes in and you feel different on the same side as Eros. Um, I was interested in that book in particular and it's how it was re- how it was received or your impression of it with regards to this question as you're reclaiming words mm-hmm. as you're describing explicitly um you know sexual coupling um well okay so let me see if i can keep my train of thought here but the thing that about pornography that i don't like and i'm not opposed to it but the thing I don't like about it is that it does what D.H. Lawrence says. It basically does dirt on sex. It makes sex dirty. Um, and that's, a, that's such a diminishment of sex. Se- I think sex in all of its possibilities, whatever they may be, and some can involve the spirit and the high connection of love, and others are just pleasure and you know ecstasy in the physical way. And I'm like, okay, that's great. Um, but to do dirt on sex... That, I don't like that, I guess, I, I would say. And I don't remember that Silverblatt interview. I don't think The Mirror in the Well uh, is pornographic in that sense. I mean, I think pornography, different from erotic fiction or erotic films, like I think the, 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 the one of the best films I've ever seen is um, In the Realm of the Senses. And they're, you know having sex, the actors are, through much of that film. Have you seen that film? I haven't, actually. It's unbelievable. Why? It's so true. It's so honest and so beautiful. And it's really intense. It's about sexual obsession. That's that's kind of a real thing, as far as I know. Um, and that some people consider, thought it was pornographic. But for me, pornography, not just the dirt on sex, um, but lies about it, you know, I have so rarely seen a film of porn, and I've watched porn, and the women are not aroused. They're not. They're not aroused. So that's a lie. Right. So they're moaning and groaning, right. but they're, they're lying. They're acting. And um, so that's the other thing. It's filled with lies and half-lies, like a lot of TV. It's really, I mean, L.A., Hollywood, you know, it's like, what is Hollywood and pornography? I actually think of them very, they're, to me, they're just the same side, uh, different sides of the same coin. They're, just, they're very similar. And they both often, not always, I mean, there's probably some great films coming out of Northridge, I don't know, but, um, but or maybe Hollywood. But they're, also, they're sort of in the same terrain. They're dealing in lies and half lies um, and fantasies and all this stuff to make a buck. And have you seen... Godard's Histoire de Cinema, the eight-hour like no collage uh, history of cinema. No, it was on TV in France in like the eighties. Oh, really? Because his whole the premise of it is looking at what Hollywood showed while the Holocaust was occurring, essentially. Yeah. And so yeah. he puts these images, wow, and then shows you like right. Sid Charisse and right. and. Watching the realm of the senses. If you haven't seen that, film. I, I want to. It's we watch lots of Japanese films, but I, I'll have to convince my wife on this one. Amazing, I think. Not everyone does, but yeah. it, when it was shown at con, people walked out. Yeah. Um, 
it's intense. I mean, it's a very intense film, but it's, yeah. Yeah. I mean, why sex pornography, you know, or what, I mean, what, what I think obvious is like the worst pornography is the violence in film and TV. Violence as entertainment to me is pornographic or whatever the term is. It's not right. And I'm in a minority, including my partner, who's like, I love it. And I'm like, I don't like it. I don't think it's right. Yeah. I don't think it should be used as an entertainment in that way. Well, there's a line that I just copied down because I loved it so much in the brief history of yes, uh, the silent, unlanguaged tongue of her interior that felt both sexual and more than sexual. Like it's not, I don't, I don't know. It was a, it was a beautiful hmm. moment for me. I Which wanna... is kind of like literature, what it does at its best. I just that made me think. I was having this conversation with my undergrads the other day, and this is probably what got me writing books in some ways. I don't know if it did you. Is like to read a sentence in someone else's book or sentences, and they don't have to be anything like me through their gender or culture or language, and you read a sentence or a scene or something, and they have articulated what is in your own interior, your own, and maybe you didn't even have it in a sentence in your interior, you just felt it, and then it's sentenced, and then there's a recognition. And that kind of recognition, that's why literature for me is just so extraordinary, because it crosses time and space and culture and language, and it's it's revolutionary, as Blake might say. It has this incredible capacity to increase not only our cognitive ability, but our empathy. Yeah. We walk, you know, in each other's shoes. We really do. We are. I just read Zora Neale Hurston's wonderful uh, masterpiece again, um, Their Eyes Are Watching God. And I just, every time I do, I just, it's just, extraordinary and such a joy and she so captured that moment the, that language of the times yeah. 1930s Eatonville Florida African American you know it's like what a beautiful thing what a gift yeah I'm gonna take us possibly down a tangent but I, okay. I want to I, I want to um, you can pull me back if I go too far <laughs> afar. Yeah, I'm the one who's like <laughs> tangenting out as much as we're talking about bodies mm -hmm. love dreams, the life cycles of a life or a relationship, there are many ways in which it feels like the human is nevertheless decentered in the brick house. There's no protagonist. There's no plot in the traditional sense of plot. Right. The characters are unnamed. Uh, and I was wondering about the, the origin of this. And so one of the places I went was when I had Talia Field on to talk about experimental animals. We talked a lot about her desire to work against our compulsive need to center the human and the personal in the frame, that part of the way she was channeling her concern for the environment, for the non-humans on the planet, was by trying to create new story forms where humans were only a small part of the frame and not in the middle. Um, I, so I wondered about if, if, if where that how that struck you. But then I also wondered if this was just accommodating the logic of dreams, uh, which by nature are associative and nonlinear and, you know, aren't based on like a hero arc of a protagonist right, with right. a story. And even in our own dreams, we can, we're this character, we're that character, you, you kind of move around. Sometimes you're a protagonist or an eye seeing and sometimes you're not. Or, yeah. I don't know. Um, that's interesting about Talia. I just met her recently. Um, and looked at and read that book. I don't remember. Uh, I can't remember what that initial choice was, 
But I think it had something to do with, I mean, there's a male dreamer and a female dreamer. The book also, when I was writing it, I was thinking and reading a lot at that time about, you know, the archetypes and myth and um, those and stories that pull out of having an individual character with his or her psychology, which is, you know, since whatever the last hundred years, I mean, I guess since Madame Bovary is like, books all have to be about a psychology. And it's like, well, no, they don't, you know, um, but it's a great book. Um, (laughs) but I mean, sometimes, you know, people think that's, you know, books do all kinds of things. And so it's, so maybe it's also part of me like experimenting and playing and thinking and all, you know, I've done different things in different books, depending on what a book takes up. I mean, so it's, it's story, it's content, say, or whatever it's inquiring into and its form are in that, in this, you know, uh, relationship. Mm. There's a section on page one on seven that I'd love you to read because for me, it, it felt like sort of evoked this idea of framing of human framing of us sort of helplessly, um, putting ourselves at the center of the frame. The old man sits with his brother at the dining table and eats his dinner from a tin can. Soon he sees each thing Thule. Two brothers in front of him, two wives in the kitchen, two cans of beer, two cans of meat on two tables. The twos then become ones again, but ones he can no longer distinguish. They are like blurred charcoal drawings. The wife, the can, the beer, the brother, the table no longer have sharp lines or limits. Then his feet lose all feeling, his tongue goes numb, and his mouth makes slurred words like his eyes make blurred images. The eyelids begin to close, and then for the closure he cannot see. His mouth opens and his tongue pushes out, and from his stomach the bile comes forth, and he has vomited onto his trousers and shoes and the table. He stands, and then he cannot stand. He is sitting again, and then he cannot sit. The muscles of the body quickly remove themselves from any kind of response, and he lies like a stranded sea animal on the edge of his outer bank's dining room. He is losing the movement of his fingers. Now the lungs begin to undo their up and back movements. The liver does not circulate. The spleen is white and becoming fatter. The can of meat stares at him from the table. The small animals that were inside of the can, brought from abroad as an uninvited souvenir, smile congenially. Happily, they trip around his bloodstream like girls skipping down a lane. The small animals lived in the dark, unoxygenated earth. The small animals traveled a long distance. The small animals ate his nerve endings like he ate the canned meat. The ambulance rushes him to the hospital. His wife holds his unfeeling hand, touches the unfeeling eyes. Machines push his lungs open and closed. With each machined breath, there is oxygen moving into the blood and waste moving out of his mouth. He is traveling in the river of his own blood. He is having the dream about the man who tries to run and cannot run. The machines push his lungs as Sisyphus pushed the giant boulder up the mountains, only to see it fall down again. Then he is running very quickly, as if he were flying almost, for he has awakened on a football field in America, and he is the football star, and the game is mid-play, and he sees in the crowd of onlookers how his mother and father hold their hands up into the air in the form of the conquering V. His wife is happy, his brother is relieved, he is V. We're listening to Micheline Aharoni and Markham read from The Brick House. 
it just maybe it was chilling to me that section like for some reason this idea that we're all inevitably going to think of ourselves as the star on the football field <laughs> in our last moments on earth. Yeah. Like, I don't know. There was something pretty powerful about that. I wrote me. that dream a long time ago. And then do you remember we had that outbreak of Ebola? Mm-hmm. And that freaked me out because that's like an Ebola scenario. And I wrote the dream way before that happened. Yeah. But... Have you read that book by David Quammen? No. Called Ebola? No. It's very short. It's like 80 pages and it's amazing as really? a story too. Wow. Like it's, you'll be on the edge of your sheet, seat and you will not stop till you finish. Wow. It's, it's amazing. And speaking of not seeing, we don't talk about like the, uh, the huge number of gorillas that were killed by Ebola. Like, so people were walking around in the forests seeing just all these dead bodies of gorillas. You're and kidding. The, the way it first started uh-huh. was, uh, a tribe taking infected meat of a gorilla right. back to the village and eating it. Right. I knew it had jumped from primates. Yeah. But they had it first, and they also suffered it. Terribly. Wow. Yeah. So there's a ton of gorilla Ebola victims. Wow. So, and yeah. there are not that many gorillas no. in the wild. I mean, no. I don't think it's even 2,000, right, or something. I don't know. No. Well... <laughs> To come back from that tangent, <laughs> uh, you have you, you have a remarkable number of books on the horizon. So I was wondering if maybe we could you would you'd be willing to tip your hand on on some of them. Like so, for instance, I was curious. I'd love it if you would talk about the new American Story Project on its own, but also um, if you could talk about it in relationship to your book, The New American, presuming that there is a connection between the two. Yeah, yeah, there definitely is. Um, so The New American, which will be out, I'm not sure, end of 18, probably likely early 19, first I was publishing it, is a book that I wrote, I started it in 2012. Um, and at that time I wanted to, I was doing a bunch of research about Mexico. I've written about Guatemala before. And I thought I was going to write about the drug wars in Mexico and what was going on there because uh, it seemed for Mexican writers and well, journalists, so many were being killed. And I just, I, as I read about it, I thought, oh, I want, to, I want to write about this or think I ought to or something. But then I ended up, as I did more research into Mexico, I started following the story of Central American migrants who cross Mexico because Central Americans, predominantly from Guatemala, uh, El Salvador and Honduras, um, who are coming north, fleeing for their lives because th- that region called the Northern Triangle has become uh, one of the most violent places on earth. I mean, the states are basically failed states. They can't protect their citizens, gangs, uh, drug cartels, corrupt police, ineffective judicial systems, etc. So people, if you're a woman, you know, the rates of femicide are much higher than Mexico. I mean, it's, there's no protection for women and children. So anyway, people are leaving, running out. It's a humanitarian crisis. But when they hit Mexico, um, it's a very dangerous place for them because they were undocumented from the time they come into Mexico. And, and many people, drug cartels most notably, the Zetas, and et cetera, are taking advantage of them. And so the, all the smuggling is now run by the cartels. And, um, and, they, and so anyway... People want to get a dollar out of everybody in every way they can, so people get kidnapped and extorted. And these are poor people who are coming, mostly. But um, so I started doing this research about migrants, and then 
I ended up writing a novel, which is The New American, about an American kid. He's Guatemalan-American, and he's a dreamer. This is before anyone talked about the dreamers, because it was quite a while ago. Um, and he gets deported. He's lived in the United States his whole life. He's a UC Berkeley College student, traffic infraction. He finds himself in a village in Guatemala where his parents are from. They had fled the Civil War. And he decides, well, I'm going to go home. I got my, my life there, and he has a girlfriend, and he's in college, and he decides he's going to go back. So he's kind of the guide for the book, not having no idea what he's getting himself into, really. He just gets on a bus, and he's like, he had talked to somebody in the town. He doesn't realize that, he's, that things are changing quickly because this mm -hmm. is the time when the drug cartels are changing the whole smuggling routes and the whole thing. Um, so he gets to Mexico, he meets up with four Hondurans, and it's the story of their coming back. They ride on the tops of the cargo trains, which is very dangerous, as many people did. And so, and so anyway, it's a very narrative book, unlike every other book I've ever written. It starts in the beginning, it goes to the end, and Emilio, the main character, it's like a close third person on him. Because I just felt like, well, this is a story that demands this kind of storytelling. So it was different from anything else I've ever done. When I was writing that book, um, like as with all my books, especially the historical ones, you know, I do all I do lots of research, but I couldn't read any books about it because it was in if it was in the moment happening. Um, so I like did all this research on YouTube and crazy things like that. I didn't go to Mexico. Um, I was afraid to actually. Mm. I don't know. Um, and as I did tons of research, and I I speak Spanish, so I I could read the papers in Mexico and and El Salvador, et cetera, and tried to find all these. I learned so much from hearing people's first-person accounts. Like I did the same thing when I wrote Three Apples Fell from Heaven about the Armenian genocide, people telling their own stories in their own words. And there wasn't that much. There was some, but not that much. Just like there wasn't that much at the time. This is before the whole dreamer movement started. And so when I finished that book, I was like, I want to start a project so that when this novel comes out, which has taken a long time for other reasons, that there's... Um, a project whereby people can tell their stories in their own words. This is a novel. It takes, you know, it does things through the imagination that novels do, but I wanted the project to be a way to record the voices of refugees um, in support of telling their stories in their own words. And I know I'm going on here, but probably in a little bit, you know, like my, my grandparents were refugees. Uh, my grandmother and orphan. She was an orphan. And, you know, so much of my work has been like trying to write in what wasn't written in in some ways, as I understand it, her story, among others. And I thought, well, why can't we? I'm alive now. I can listen and record stories. So so the New American Story Project came out of that. It came out of a class. I took um, some of my grad students into a local high school to do a creative writing class. It turned out 28 out of 29 of those kids were refugees from Central America. They were part of that crisis in 2014 where many children came because the violence was spiking. And the project has gone on and developed, and now there are three of us who work on it. Um, and, you know, part of just in many ways kind of like my novels, I've thought a lot about how do you tell a story that's emergent digitally so that it can be more available in the moment and maybe not take years to get it out into the world because you can do a story more quickly. But do it through video, through audio, through monologue, uh, working with other artists too, and just trying a different way to tell stories but all through uh, people telling their own stories. So well, we don't just interview the kids anymore. I've interviewed 44 people, and half of them are actually like immigration attorneys, hmm. um, 
people who work in those countries and who are anthropologists or humanitarian uh, activist workers, you know, so because the kids actually, when I talk to the kids and I've interviewed them, they can say, this happened to me. They actually often don't, are not able to put it in a larger context. What happened to those countries? How is it connected to the United States? What's the legal process in the United States? I mean, the lying and obfuscation right now as immigrants are being targeted, used as political pawns, I mean, not only does it make me sick, but it's, um, it, it's, you know, um, it is so inaccurate. It's just this base manipulation, stare, you know, to use another for, you know, in the ways that we know. But, um, and I just feel like, well, you just try to tell things as they are. This is how the law actually works. You know, like we have asylum laws for people. If you arrive at our southern border and you say, I'm afraid, there are laws that protect you and there's due process for those people. Thank goodness this comes out of the Second World War. Um, so the new American story project people can interface with now, but is is the new American your next book coming out? Yeah, so the new American will be my next book, and that's not going to be out for, I don't know, 10 months or something. The new American story project is online, although I'm redoing the website right now, which will be up in like six weeks. We are now working with, you know, instead of just grad students doing it on a shoestring, we're working with a designer, and it'll look better be easier to move through. Yeah. And and what are you working on now? That. That. I can't tell you how much time the New American Story Project takes. Yeah. Um, and I have to finish final edits on the New American. Um, and so when both of those things are done, I have a novel that I'm halfway through that I haven't returned to in about a year about a, a woman and her double mm. I'd like to get back to. Um, I have a 17-year-old who's going to go to college, so I work on that, too. <laughs> <laughs> I bet that takes some time. And teach. Um, <laughs> well, it was great having you on Between the Covers. Oh, thank you so much. It was really great to be here. We're talking today to Micheline Aharonian-Markham about her latest book, The Brick House, from Aust Press. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO, volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. More of Micheline Aronian Markham's work can be found at michelinemarkham.com and also at the Between the Covers Patreon page at patreon.com slash betweenthecovers where she reads excerpts of her two forthcoming books, Small Pieces and The New American. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating this outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes, and Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Browning.